Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough, coming to you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a cool program for you all today. I have no doubt you will learn, grow, and be inspired by today's show. Before we get into our main event, I want to thank you for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and subscribe. Your likes and follows help ensure you won't miss any of our new shows, and it makes the algorithm gods happy, which helps us. So thanks for that. Also, be sure to visit our website, notrealart.com. Sign up for our newsletter to keep your finger on the pulse of everything we're doing here at Not Real Art for artists and art lovers. A lot of great stuff there. On the website, you'll see you'll get uh, free educational videos. You can sign up for our artist grant for the chance to receive $2,000. You can buy affordable original contemporary art through our partnership with Sugar Press. And you can become a supporter through Patreon if you want. So be sure to check out our website today for all the good, healthy stuff we got for you. Okay, party people, we have a hot one for you today. Our special guest VIP artist on the podcast. It's hard to get cooler, quite frankly. This guy has painted in some of the most fascinating, interesting, exotic locales in the world. He has painted in the catacombs beneath Paris, aboard an airplane with the whole plane watching, in Mumbai, on the patio of a restaurant in the middle of a monsoon, in front of La Sagrada Familia Barcelona, excuse the accent, beneath the Eiffel Tower, in the courtyard above the Louvre, on a rooftop in Madrid, on stage with rock bands, on stage with poets. In the shadow of a dam in Granada, at the Hammer Museum, on the streets of Venice Beach, poolside in the outskirts of Valencia, Spain, poolside on a rooftop in downtown Los Angeles, amongst the crowds on the Vegas Strip, in nightclubs across Hollywood, in nightclubs across India, on the streets of Tokyo. I mean, where hasn't this guy painted? Who the hell am I even talking about? Can you guess? Do you know? The one and only Max Neutra, folks. Yeah, baby, Max Neutra is in the house, chopping it up with little old me, your good friend Sourdough. And not only do we talk about all the cool stuff that Max has done, we're talking about today all the cool stuff he is doing. Because now, these days, he's working with the geniuses over at Meow Wolf, where he has been an artist. For the last four years, making incredible objects and exhibitions and artworks for their incredible experiences in Santa Fe, Denver, and Las Vegas. And if you don't know who Meow Wolf is, you better Google that shit like right now and get in the know. Get some wisdom here, people, because Meow Wolf is... So damn cool. It's an arts and entertainment company based in Santa Fe. They create immersive and interactive experiences that transport audiences of all ages 
into fantastic realms of story and exploration. I mean, the smart money is saying that these guys are like the next Disney, the next Walt Disney, like the artists there are like the next Imagineers. And that's high praise if you guys know the brilliance of Imagineering. And so we have Max Neutra here today to talk to us about all this cool stuff that's going on for him as an artist around the world, but also at Meow Wolf there in Santa Fe, Vegas, and Denver. So without further ado, let's get into this with the one and only Max Neutra. Max Neutra, welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast. Thanks, Scott. I'm so glad to be here. Dude, I am so glad you're here. This is something I've been looking forward to for a very long time. It is so good to see you again, my friend. Good to see you, too. I was also looking forward to this. This is so good, which is saying a lot because as busy as you are and have been forever, because we've known each other forever, you've always been busy. The fact that you pay any attention whatsoever to what we're doing over here is an honor. And uh, anyway, so I'm thrilled to have you. Man, you're looking healthy. You're looking good. We've been through the wars. The last three years have been a freaking shit show. (laughs) (laughs) How are you faring? How are you holding up? Yeah, I agree. It's been a little tough. It's been a little tough out there. I have to say, I feel really lucky. I feel really grateful. You know, I've been able to keep working in a creative field through all of this. I have a little girl who's happy and healthy. My whole family's doing all right. Yeah, it's been hard. It's been traumatic. There's been ups and downs. But generally speaking, I just feel really lucky, you know. Amen. And also sort of living where you live. How did that play out for you? Because I mean, because you, you, you're still in Albuquerque, correct? Yeah, actually Santa Fe, which is I'm sorry, Santa Fe. Right, 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 yeah, yeah. right. My God, what a beautiful place that is to quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Santa Fe hasn't been that bad. It's been relatively, you know, I mean, we, we've got friends in LA still and stuff. And so we've been keeping up with what's been going on in, in LA and and just the sheer numbers are kind of freaky. And and Santa Fe's, you know, it's like there's 70,000 people in Santa Fe. So it's a relatively tiny town. It's been relatively easy. People are into wearing masks for the most part. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love Santa Fe for a lot of reasons. It's beautiful. It's easy. There's, you know, it, it takes like 15 minutes to get across town. The weather is relatively mild. It gets cold in the winter here, but, you know, for the most part, it's an easy, beautiful little town, you know, and then I happened to run across Meow Wolf once I moved out here, which was great. So Meow Wolf, what's that? Never heard of them. (laughs) 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 Well, okay. We'll get there because, of course, that is one of the most exciting developments in your career over the last several years. But before we get into all that, you know, I want to... I want to go back because I do remember, I mean, you were here in LA. We used to get to see each other. We used to do projects together. And then one day you up, you pull stakes and head east to Santa Fe. Remind me, I'm forgetting now, what was that about initially? Was that, did you have some sort of connection to Santa Fe or was you just, or were you just rolling the dice? I mean, what took you to Santa Fe initially? Sure. I was born in Venice Beach, California in an apartment right above the sidewalk cafe, uh, right on the boardwalk in Venice Beach. (laughs) Yes, I know it well. Yeah, I'm proud to have that in my blood. I love Venice. And we lived in LA, in Venice, in Pasadena until I was about six. And then we moved out to New Mexico. My family moved us out to New Mexico. And we moved into a three-room shack that had no running water or electricity and an out, it had an outhouse yeah, just out yeah. on the land. Rustic. I love it. Yeah. 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 And so we were there for a little bit and then eventually moved into a small town called Madrid. It's a little 300 person town, old coal mining town outside of Santa Fe. And eventually we made our way into Santa Fe and I went to high school there and I grew up in Santa Fe. Once high school was over, it's, you know, Santa Fe, like I said earlier, it's a small town. And it's one of those places where you kind of get the, the itch to get out once you reach a certain age. I think I was about 15 when I started realizing, oh, I got to get out of here. That's <laughs> yeah. what brought me back to California. I went to school out in, in the Bay Area and then ended up back down in L.A. because, you know, I have family there and work brought me out there. And so then I was back out in L.A. for, I don't know, 12, 15 years, something like that, before I came, eventually came back to Santa Fe. Well, and so I want to go, I want to talk a little bit about just for a few seconds. I know you you probably get bored talking about this stuff, but for our listeners sake, who don't have the context that I have, you know, you have some really, really interesting special roots in LA. I noticed your last name is Neutra. Any connection to Richard Neutra? 
Yeah, yeah, Richard. Richard's a cool guy. He's my great grandfather. <laughs> he was a well-known modern architect who built a lot of very cool modern homes out in LA and around the world, really. But most of his homes are in California. Yeah, Richard was a, was a really interesting guy. He was hanging out with like Sigmund Freud and getting intellectual about stuff. And I really wish he died in 1970. I was born in 78, so I never got to meet the guy. Mm. But I wish I could have because when I read about him and learn about the way he used to think, it makes me wish I could sit down and just have some conversations with him. And my grandfather, Dion, his son, also was an architect. And so I did get to hang out with Dion. I actually considered being an architect for about five minutes and somebody convinced me not to. It was actually some wise advice. They said, if you try to be an architect, you're always going to be trying to get out from the shadow of your famous great grandfather. Wow. wow. Yeah. Interesting point for sure. Yeah. And so, you know, I didn't do it, but also because I just don't think I had the, I was pretty good at math and, and I'm pretty good at figuring stuff out, but I was just a little too rowdy, I think, for to be an architect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, architecture can be a bit of a stuffy trade, uh, stuffy, stuffy profession. Well, yeah, that's great advice, though, that idea that you may have to change your name, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, well, the only way to get out of that is to rebrand. So I see now an interesting connection in terms of your artistic chops. I mean, they had to come from somewhere. And obviously, there's a lot of artistic and creative intelligence in your family. How about your parents? Were they creative at all? And, and I mean, they were living in Venice when, when they had you, and then they moved out to rural New Mexico. They, I don't know. Forgive me if I say this, but I'm, I'm wondering if they might be creative hippie types. I know. It's funny. I mean, they were a little bit hippie type. My dad ended up really falling in love with Macintosh computers right when they came out. And so he ended up being like one of the early Mac guys. I remember him kind of programming really simple stuff on those first Macintosh computers. And that's kind of what he did throughout my whole, since I was eight, that's all he's, he's done. And that's kind of his his passion. When I was younger and we were still in L.A., he worked for Capitol Records and he was the display guy. He would go around to record stores and set up the window displays and various displays in the stores to promote the new hits. By the way, that's a cool job. Come on. Like, how fun was that? Because, I mean, in my mind, I mean, I'm old enough to remember record stores myself and the window displays or retail displays were super creative. Yeah. And it was kind of a golden age, too, at the time that he was doing it. Um, because of that gig that he had working for Capitol Records, I got to go to a lot of concerts when I was really young. I, I met the Rolling Stones when I was a baby and and I saw like Devo and Kraftwerk and the missing persons all before I was like four, you know, stuff like this that. This explains so much about you, Max. Like I'm so it's all coming together now for me because of course, you know, obviously we'll get to your profession and expertise and experience as a visual artist, but I think your first love was music, no? No, that's very true. My first love was music. When I went to school after high school, I went to the sound arts program at Expression Center for New Media in the Bay Area, which is basically, you know, how to record bands and do TV sound and live sound and that sort of thing. I wanted to be a producer and I was making electronic music, not really the kind of dancey stuff, but I, I was a little bit more, you know, more like craft work, kind of bleak bloop, experimental, groovy jams. It's hard to make a living as a producer. <laughs> and it's one of those things where it's like a lot of people want to do it, but not a lot of people get to do it for a living. You really, you know, kind of have to luck out and be at the right place, right time and all that sort of stuff. And I did end up producing an, an album that's out on Spotify. If you look me up on Spotify, there's that's the, the kind of culmination of my 10 years of making music. So on Spotify, we just search for Max Neutra or what do we have to search for? Yeah, yeah, you can it. search for Max Neutra. The album is called, yeah, the album's called Automation Addiction. All right. And, yeah, I know yeah. what I'm doing after this show. <laughs> <laughs> music was very much a thing. And anyone who's produced music knows how it just, it's a total time warp. You know, I've said to friends before, the two things that I've experienced that are the closest to Time Machine is jamming on a synthesizer and my kid. Those two things warp time like nothing else. So yeah, I used to spend eight hours at a time just sitting on my computer tweaking mixes and stuff like that. And then, you know, something happened, something shifted. I was in LA at the time. I was working for Warner Music Group as their main audio video guy. 
which means I was basically taking care of their all their conference rooms and and everybody's. It was a cool gig. Like everyone, it's a big music company, so everyone has a stereo from the intern's boombox in their cubicle all the way up to the president's $60,000 stereo. Sure, yeah. And it would be anything from, hey, like my, I can't, I'm not getting this station on my boombox all the way to, hey, I've got Neil Young in the office and I can't figure out how to press play on the CD player. <laughs> and so I was running around and I got to know everyone in the company because of that gig. And it was, it was a fun gig. But it also kind of taught me, you know, what the music business is really like at least within that company, you know, and, and there was something about it that just kind of, it was too, it just wasn't as artistic and free flowing and, and groovy as I imagined it. It was very corporate. And, and I just kind of, it kind of turned me off a little bit of pursuing music as a career. And I went through a little bit of a, a moment where I was kind of reevaluating what the heck I was doing with my life. And, and then I had an epiphany. I actually remember this moment. Paint a picture for us. Where are we? Yeah. Okay. So I was in LA. Oh, I think it was somewhere. It's somewhere in like West LA. And what was the place called? Toast or something? God, it was some coffee shop. I had just finished installing a stereo in a retail store. And I had gone like a few doors down to this corner coffee shop. And I'm waiting for my... and, And I'm looking around. It's the middle of the day on a weekday. And... This is a normal scene for LA, by the way. And middle of the day on the weekday doesn't mean anything in LA for, you know, there's people exactly. out and about all the time. But exactly. there's a bunch of places just hopping. There's people everywhere, a bunch of young people. And I caught myself thinking, man, what are all these people doing here? Like, don't they have jobs? What are they, <laughs> what are they just sitting around for? Like, and then it kind of escalated. Like, what are they, what are they contributing to society? What are they contributing to the universe? You know, and then, you know, I was kind of, get going off the rails a little bit. And then I thought, okay, Max, this is a little unfair. You know, I'm sure these are all really nice people and, well, you know, there's no need for you to pass judgment here. But also I kind of turned the questions on myself in that moment. I said, well, what are you contributing to the universe? Mm. And I thought, well, I did just install a stereo. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, well, that's okay. You know, I guess. But then, then I changed the question to, well, what are you built for? What would you be doing if whether you're paid or not, right. you know, and what comes out of you naturally? And that's mm-hmm. when I realized in that moment, I went, well, you're a creative guy. You, you make music. You like to draw. I was drawing all through high school. I've, I was always drawing. I just never really pursued it seriously. Mm-hmm. But it was in that moment that I went, you're, you need to be a creative person. Like, that's what you are already. So you should figure out how to do that for a living, you know, so you can be who you are for a living. That was the big moment for me. Wow. Yeah. There's so much there. And I hope that's inspiring to the people listening too, because it does take that level of awareness, right? That level of introspection, that level of honesty, tough love, self tough love or tough, tough self love. (laughs) Yeah, man. I mean, you know, you're asking those hard questions. I mean, at the end of the day, we live in a country uh, and a culture that is actually quite privileged, quite wealthy, for so many people. And we have the choice, this idea of following your passion and following your bliss and, you know, all of that. I mean, that's a luxury. <laughs> that Absolutely. is a luxury, right? And, and as an artist, I mean, for creative people, creative, you know, I've, I've often said that, you know, being an artist or being a creative, it's not a job, it's a calling. You kind of don't have a choice in the matter. And I think the same thing goes to, you know, people that obviously are on, you know, first responders, firefighters, you know, those kinds of folks. And then of course, teachers, you know, teachers, firefighters, doctors, and artists. I mean, we're trying to do the Lord's work <laughs> on yeah. some level, yeah. Matt. Well, I mean, it's hard to argue if, if you feel like, you know, going back to that question, like what was coming out of me naturally? What am I built for? Yeah. You know, I mean, when you think about just the chance of being alive on this planet, you know, like just the, the amount of space that is out there and the amount of rocks that don't have life on them pretty much all of them except this one don't have humans, right? And it's like the chance of being a human being alive on this planet in this moment is just so mind-boggling, right? And so, (laughs) you know, and so the billions of years of the universe that led to me being alive in this moment built me for doing something, right? I'm built for something, not just my life that I've had so far, but the universe built me, you know, into this moment. What, what what's coming out of me? What am I here for? You know, 
no pressure there. Okay, so you have this epiphany. Then what? I mean, did what, did yeah. you go to over to over to Warner Brothers and quit your job? I mean, how did the next few days and weeks and months unfold for you? There's a couple of key moments, actually. I was talking to my good friend, Ian. He's my best friend from college. We would talk on the phone sometimes, and 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 I was kind of whinging to him on the phone saying, like, well, I just want to be an artist. And and he said, you know, you got to stop saying that, Max. And I said, what do you mean? Stop saying that. He goes, you already are an artist. You, <laughs> just, you haven't figured out how to be one for a living. You, you already are one in your soul. You already are one as your person. Yeah. Stop saying I got to be an artist and figure out what the next step is, you know? So that was a good kick in the pants. Yep. And another one was with my uncle. And same thing. I said, I just want to be an artist. And he said, what do you have to do to do that? What do you have to do? And I said, uh, get paintings in the gallery. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I was so hung up on just wanting to be an artist that I hadn't quite figured out what it would take. And he started getting me to think about what it would take. He says, I mean, it was literally like, go set up a space in your house that is your workspace. Get some lights, you know, get a table, get some art supplies, you know, like start (laughs) making art and that kind of a thing. And we broke it down to the baby steps. I was thinking 20 steps out instead of taking the step that was right in front of me. And those were really big moments. But it was still five years. I started drawing and painting. YouTube was still relatively kind of new. God, what year is this? Maybe 20, 2005 is when I really right. started yeah. drawing. And and once I started getting kind of good enough, I started posting videos of me painting on YouTube, which at the time, there wasn't a lot of live painting on YouTube. Now it's like, you know, it's everywhere, which is great. Yeah. It's so fun. But I was lucky in that if you searched live painting, you'd find me, you know? And so what happened was some kids out in India we're putting together a tour to promote Corona across India, and they wanted a live painter. By the way, let's clarify for our listeners: Corona the beer, not Corona the. <laughs> oh right, right, right. Yeah, let's, let's, oh my gosh! Yeah, let's get, let's get clear on that. Yeah, Corona the beer. Oh man, Corona must be having a hard time these. Uh, well, days. well, initially, right? They were saying, "Oh, we're going to change our name," or we like they were taking a hit. Clearly, they survived. But anyway, yeah, we digress. Right. Go. Ahead. They'll be all right. Yeah. So anyway, they reached out to me and they said, hey, do you want to come paint uh, across India for six weeks? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, of course. Right. Yes. And so I (laughs) called my boss and said, can I leave for six weeks and have a job when I get back? And he said, no. (laughs) And so I said, well, I guess I quit then, you know, because I can't pass up this opportunity. And that was the moment that I, you know, I talked to my wife and I said, look, I'm going to try this. And let's So I'm sorry, you were married at the time. Yeah, I was married at the time. Gotcha, gotcha. And the deal that I cut with my wife was as long as I pay my half of the bills on time, then is it okay if I do this? And and she said, yeah. She was very nervous about it, but she was also very supportive. And so the plan was, I'm just going to do this. It'll be six weeks in India, and then I'll have the money will last longer. You know, than that I'll have a little cushion, and let's see how long I can go as a full time artist. And that lasted ten years. Amazing. I mean, wow. (laughs) So, so when you come back from India, what was that like? Because you, you know, like we, for those of us who have been to traveled internationally or been to exotic places, I mean, you're a changed person, you come back, but you were changed on multiple levels, not just like culturally or politically or whatever, having been in India for six weeks, but you had expressed yourself in a deep way visually through your art. And so you were a bona fide professional visual artist at that point, right? Because you've been painting for six months, they paid you. Now you're back. Then what? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, before that trip, I had been starting to paint live out in LA. And LA is a great city for that sort of thing. I remember talking to some of my friends that I met painting live, like Michael Pukash, John Park, these guys that we were all kind of starting this thing. It felt like we were, not not that we were the first live painters that there ever was. I, I think of Denny Dent as one of the first action painters. He's one of my favorites. But anyway, we, we felt like we were kind of starting this little scene in LA of live painters. And when I say live painters, I mean, we would just set up easels and paint at the bar on Friday nights or go paint at the music festival out on the sidewalk or go paint at the gallery opening, you know, as the featured artist for that night or, or wherever we, wherever they would let us. Sometimes we would just go places uninvited and set up. (laughs) And 
So we had already kind of started doing that before, you know, that's part of how I got my chops up for yeah. India. Yeah. And so when I got back, I just dived into that scene, but did it more, <laughs> you know? And like I said, LA is a great city for that because there's enough going on in that town that you can be, you know, you can paint four nights a week easily. And then the way I made money was sometimes you get paid to paint, but that was pretty rare. Most of the time they just let you paint there. And then if you made money selling anything, then that was stuff you got to keep. So some nights I wouldn't make anything and some nights I'd make 600 bucks. It just, it just depended on the night. There are big key moment nights, some nights where I'd make two grand all of a sudden because some big player came in and bought five paintings, that kind of stuff. But it was all an adventure and it was all, you know, each month you didn't know. It was, you didn't know where the next paycheck was coming from. It was all a big chance. And I just had to have faith and, and had to be persistent and keep doing it, you know, and it worked out. So is this about the time that you met our mutual buddy and dear friend, Man One? Yeah, yeah. I met Man One mostly because of his gallery downtown. I think I was in some group shows there. And, you know, I mean, he's a iconic figure in the L.A. art scene. It was hard not to know who Man One was. Because that's how we met. We met through Man One. We met through the gallery, you and I. I remember yep. seeing your work there for the first time. I think, you know, you're, I, I mean, forgive me if I get this wrong, but I believe, I'm forgetting now if the first piece of yours I saw was either your iconic uh, rabbit or your iconic boombox. It might have been the boombox, but I forget because, of course, you know, you've, you've done a lot of work with those motifs. Yeah, to be honest, I can't remember which one it was yeah, first. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but yeah, it was probably one of those things. Boomboxes and rabbits and weird mushroom clouds and I don't know, all kinds of wacky <laughs> stuff went on over there. There's always such a positive energy, positive vibration. Your work has, as you know, the work that, that I've seen over the years. And I mean, the vibration, it just, it vibrates at a very lovely, positive level, you know. Thanks. It's nice of you to say that. I, I would hope that it puts off some good vibes. Obviously, always being a music lover, you know, being a bit of electronic musician, if not, uh, I don't know if you're an instrumentalist. Do you play an instrument as well? I do. I play a little. I played guitar before I got into electronic music okay. and it was pretty good, you know, mm -hmm. before yeah. I switched over to the bleeps and bloops. <laughs> so <laughs> while you're doubling down on your visual art career, did the music take a, a real backseat or were you still playing music at this time as well? The way that transition happened was, uh, was pretty abrupt. I started painting and dropped music really hard and cold, really just rude drop on the music. How dare you? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, that was the moment where I talked, you know, we were talking earlier before we were recording, we were talking about just growing and changing. Yes, sure. And that was one of those moments where I had doubts. I felt bad. You know, I had pursued music for, you know, 10 years and now I'm just going to drop it like just on a dime. And, but one of the th cool things that happened was there were these guys out in the UK that ran a record label called Heavy Disco. And they were some of the only people I actually sent some of my music to just because I liked the style of what they were putting out. And I thought they might like my stuff. And they did like my stuff. And, you know, I was about 90% done with an album. You know, I could have, if I just kept going a little bit more, I would have had the, the, the whole album. And they knew that. And so when they caught wind that I just dropped it, they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You, you know, no, 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 no. You got to <laughs> finish you? the album. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I'm so grateful for them for pushing me to really dial that album in because it now has kind of a, a nice bow on it, you know, and it, it, it's an accomplishment versus uh, an unfinished thing. And so, yeah, if it weren't for those guys, this guy, Hal, Mofo Hi-Fi was another, I think is the label that they used to put the record out on. And they're part of a group called the Young Punks. If, if anyone's into that sort of stuff, you'll find them on Spotify as well. But yeah, Hal from the Young Punks plays a big role in getting that album out. And so I finished the album and then kind of washed my hands. And, and now I still, to this day, I still 
jam. I have like a modular synthesizer and I don't really record anything. I just jam and have fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of the reason why I'm going down this path with you is well, a to give context and paint a picture for the listeners in terms of your artistic journey. And of course, B, just to sort of jog my memory as well. Well, I don't know if it was one of the last conversations we had, although you, maybe it was, but you know, one of the last conversations I remember us having was a conversation that we had around this, you know, passion of yours and, and interest in yours of like combining the electronic skill set and aptitude or whatever that you have around electronic music, you know, with your art practice and and what you know, how where do you go with that and what do you do? And you and I were, you know, just sort of spitballing you know, over the phone, you know, because you were sort of wringing your hands about like, I love this. I'm good at this. And I, I know these things can go together. And what do you think, Scott, about this and this and this? It was a really great conversation. And lo and behold, cut to you end up at Meow Wolf. <laughs> right. And which, by yeah. the way, I don't even know if Meow Wolf existed at the time of the conversation that we had that day. Of course, Meow Wolf is a great home for you, <laughs> you know, or or you're great for Meow Wolf because you have this multidisciplinary, multidimensional creative mind. And uh, I'm just so happy for you, brother. I'm so proud of you, if I dare say so, uh, if I have the right to say that. It feels like you did find your calling and your home and your place to be at least now and for the immediate future. That's nice of you to say, Scott. And I, uh, yeah, man, the Meow Wolf thing, it's hard to put into words, but I do feel like I found a special spot for me. It, I can't think of a place I'd rather be on this, this little rock of planet Earth. And all <laughs> in the, the universe. <laughs> yeah, in the universe. <laughs> Meow Wolf is the place. It's pretty amazing. When we moved back to Santa Fe from LA, I didn't, it wasn't until I already made the decision to move back that people started mentioning Meow Wolf to me. Like, oh, are you going to, you know, are you going to go start hanging out with Meow Wolf? And I'm like, what? Who's the, who are those guys? And they were in the process of building their exhibition here when I moved back. Just interrupt, Max. I want to know. So the ex- so were they in the process of building the exhibition at the bowling alley or at the gallery? Because as I know the story, they built the ship at the gallery that was their real coming out. And it was a game changer. And then eventually, of course, they bought the bowling alley, which became their Santa Fe. Pres- so where were you in that timeline? Sure, sure. They had already done the ship in the gallery. Okay. And they were now doing the bowling alley. Okay, gotcha. Which is called the House of Eternal Return is the name of the exhibition. You know, it was, you know, their next level thing. It was the buzz of the town, you know, all the all the artists in town knew about it. And in a way they were kind of like, you know, I got to Santa Fe and I still had that LA energy of going out. Like I said, I was going out a lot in LA and meeting people, painting live, meeting people doing things a lot. And, and then I came to Santa Fe and tried to keep that up, going out, meeting people, doing things. And I quickly kind of came up against the difference in pace. People were kind of looking at me sideways, like, what are you nuts? This is, you know, <laughs> slow, slow down a little bit, dude. What you know, hustle are you thing. on, sir? This is. <laughs> <laughs> but then I learned, oh, you know, all that creative. And in a way, Meowth was kind of bogarting all of the youthful creative energy of the town. And so I reached out to Vince, the CEO, on Facebook. You know, I, I just reached out to him directly and said, "Hey, I'm Max. I I grew up here. I left. I went to LA. I, you know, I'm an artist guy." I love what you guys are doing. I would already be your pal if I had never left. I already would have been hanging out with you guys. Now I just need to play catch up, you know? And he said, yeah, yeah, just come on down to the house and, you know, we'll, we'll volunteer. Basically, everyone's working on a volunteer basis. <laughs> just come volunteer. We'll put you to work. And so I just about did that. And But that was also right when my daughter Zoe was born. And then immediately, you know, as you know, when your first kid is born, it's like forget about it. I mean, yeah, forget about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Volunteer. Your yeah, life yeah. is your life is not your own. It's yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I immediately kind of started the Zoe project, and that lasted two years, and it was actually really great. That I, I was a freelance. I was still doing art. I was doing you know audio video stuff on the side hustle. You know, I was this freelance guy, and which really was great because I was able to be around for Zoe's first two years a lot and just be a 
really involved dad and help feed her and change her and just be around her a lot. And that was really, really great and precious. Um, and once she turned two, the fog starts lifting a little bit and you start going, yeah, I think she's going to make it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And because of the baby time machine, which we've already talked about, you know, the two years went went like that, you know? Oh yeah. yeah, Total baby time machine. Absolutely. And then other things too, like, Hey, you know what? A steady paycheck might be kind of cool right about now. And Maybe some health benefits. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, like, what are those? What are those? those right. Twelve years. So I wrote Vince again. Hey, remember me? I'm still here. Uh, I'm ready to party now. You know. Yeah, yeah. By then they had opened the house and it was a wild success. And Vince was just really great. I mean, you know, he's, a, he's the CEO of this rocket company. The fact that he gave me any amount of time at all is amazing. Vince and I did a little bit of a dance for about a year. Of just kind of, well, where are we going to, hmm, how are we going to fit you in and that kind of a thing. But I made sure to be just squeaky enough for him to have to sort me, you know? Sure, yes. I put some oil on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, he was great. Vince was really great. And he was throwing me bones like he would have me do some concepts. He made sure that I could walk the walk, you know? And, right, um, so vetting he, you. He and, was vetting you, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, he had me do some projects and do some drawings and build something. I made something called the voice activated kaleidoscope that's still in the house and in the house of eternal return to this day. And so, you know, I proved myself first and earned it, you know, and, and then eventually he got me in and I started with them in what at the time was called the narrative department. And I was the one artist amongst, I think it was eight writers. And the job was just to kind of hang out with these writers and figure out what the story is and do concept work and come up with ideas on ways that we might physically realize elements of story in our exhibitions. Dream job. Absolutely. It was a total dream job. I mean, it was like the fact that I landed here in Santa Fe just by chance. You know, I didn't come to Santa Fe to to seek out Meow Wolf. I came to Santa Fe because it's my old home. Yes, yes. And just the fact that Meow Wolf happened to be starting here Right at the time, it does feel a little magical. It feels a little like, you know, fate. I don't know. Something, some kind of magic was in it. Yeah. Right. And, you know, all of the years and years and years of life and living and choices and just who knew, right, that it was just going to be exactly the right recipe for a place like Meow Wolf, which, you know, I have to guess, I have to imagine is filled with people like Max Neutra. You know, <laughs> creative genius who, you know, who provocateurs and, and innovators and don't want to take no for an answer. Yeah, not taking no for an answer. That's a good one. That's definitely part of how I landed here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember exactly how I heard about Meow Wolf initially. I think it was word of mouth, you know, you know, several years ago and just, God, I got to get out there. I got to get out there. I got to get that. I still haven't been out there, but I have watched the documentary that people can watch. I guess it's still on the website. I don't know, but it's just so inspiring. The story, these, these artists who were frustrated with the art scene in Santa Fe, which was quite, you know, not surprisingly a conservative and, uh, and older and just not really down with the the young energy and and ideas and they're as i recall squatting in this house with and they're throwing parties you know hijacking the power from the power lines (laughs) whatever they're doing you know to throw these parties and then somehow some way their parties in their scene become so epic and, and and popular that this i forget the name of the gallery but the gallery there gave them a shot and they build the the ship Inside and it's just this the vision and the visionary nature of the of the kids, which is typical of so many artists, right? Because I mean, it's like no, no, it's a five pound bag, but goddamn it, I'm going to put ten pounds in there, you know, <laughs> right? And and they did it again and again and again. And then, uh, you know, I think that can do attitude. I mean, just when they wanted to buy the uh, alley and they they didn't have the financing, and you know, and they go to George when he sees their vision, he supports them. I mean, the story and now they have the reputation. And of course, I say they, you, you have the reputation, Max Neutra, aka Meow Wolf team member. You have the reputation of being the next Imagineering. And you have locations now in Denver and Vegas. The story's epic. It's incredible. It is. It's really it's kind of like a fairy tale. 
but there's a lot there. I think, you know, going back to the beginning of it, you're talking about what these kids that are kind of rebelling against the established art scene here in Santa Fe. And I mean, one of the things that I think made it a success was that because they weren't trying to fit in to an established scene that has a set of rules and regulations and ways to do it, they were kind of making their own rules. And because of that, they were able to, a lot of that early stuff, and really to this day, a lot of it is just about what is inspiring, you know? It's not like, what is the, well, if I'm going to get into this gallery, I need to make Southwestern landscapes. You know what I mean? It's more like, what do I just want to make? Because I think it's cool. I don't care what anyone else thinks. I'm just going to make my thing, right? And it was art for art's sake. It was art for inspiration's sake. And when you do that sort of thing, it's infectious. The passion and just the inspiration that went into it, it shows. And people can feel it and see it. And it comes off of the work. And it's one of those things It kind of reminds me of the beginning. I remember, I don't remember the name of the band now, but I remember seeing in a documentary somewhere about the origins of punk rock and how there was some story of this band that, oh, what were they called? Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. They were, you know, practicing in their house and their neighbors thought it was too noisy. And so, and like kind of in a rebellion against their neighbors trying to shut down their practice they started playing at double speed just to annoy their neighbors, you know, like if, just that, like kind of natural, like, no, F you, I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to do it despite what you think. Double down. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to double down and fight against you telling me no. I feel like there's a little bit of that punk rock attitude there. And yeah, I, I think it just really, it obviously paid off. One of my favorite moments in the documentary, it's called the, I think it's called origin story the Meow Wolf origin story, if anyone wants to watch it, it's super fun. There's a moment in there where Vince the CEO is in a meeting and they're talking about, he's saying something like, we got we to gotta raise $2 million. And there's another guy in the meeting that's saying, ooh, $2 million, that's, whew, that's a lot. I don't know. I mean, can we even do that? I don't, I don't know if we can do that. And Vince, in a kind of a harsh and abrupt way, says, well, if you don't think we can do that, then you're not the guy for the job. Then we need to find someone else. You know, he kind of, that kind of a thing. I just thought that was a nice little window into the attitude that got Meow Wolf up to speed. I mean, he was fearless. Yeah. And he was just like, no, we're not going to – the second we say no, can we even do that? Then it's over. You're done. We yeah. have to just keep saying yes, 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 you know, until it's impossible. But they kept saying yes, and he kept trying, and, you know, it worked out. Well, and, you know, you said something earlier that I want to go back to because I think it's such an important point, which is this idea of, of having faith and trust in your own vision. Because, of course, the product, if that, that sounds really crass, but, but the Meow Wolf experience, put it that way, the Meow Wolf experience from day one was truly novel and unique and fresh in the world, right? And it was novel, unique, and fresh in the world because it was their vision and it wasn't like they were saying, oh, what should we do that people want or buy tickets for? It was like, no, no, no. What do we want? What do we think is cool? Yeah. And, I, you know, that takes courage. That takes vision. That takes, you know, endurance. And, and it takes, you know, naivete. <laughs> you know what I mean, like, you know, it is, you know, just that, that sense of uh, vigor that comes with that boldness that innovators need to have, right, to innovate. And that's what In Meow Wolf has really done. It's, it's just innovated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's innovative. We take risks. We try to be disruptive. There's things like, for example, the subject of NFTs. Yes, let's hear this story. For every time I've heard the phrase NFT this month, you know, I'd have, you know, a lot of, you know, so, so yes, take us through this little journey. I mean, NFTs, how does Meow Wolf show up in that conversation? Well, I mean, it's an ongoing conversation. Sure. It'd be silly to try to say that we aren't talking about it because, how could we not be talking about it? We are this company that, you know, that claims to be a bunch of artists. You know, we are an art-based company. We are champions for the arts. And if NFTs are the hottest new art craze, like, obviously, we got to be thinking about it, right? One of the things that keeps coming up is, you know, NFTs, if we were going to do NFTs, how would we do it different? You know, this is why I brought it up. It's like the disruptive nature. It's We don't want to try to glom on to something that's already established. If there's something established, what we want to try to do is break it, you know, disrupt it, do the unexpected. 
take the thing that people expect and and surprise people. And in a way, part of the reason we haven't gotten into NFTs, in my opinion, is that the NFT scene is moving so quickly that it's hard. It's like it's hard to disrupt a thing that's constantly changing. It's exactly. like disrupting itself. You know, yeah, and so and so in a way, we're just like, oh, we're not going to get into that right now. How do you disrupt the water, right? Right, right, yeah. right, exactly. So we're watching and we're interested, but you know, there's plenty of other stuff that's keeping us busy. You know, we're we're working on new exhibitions and all kinds of other stuff that we're cooking up. Yeah. Well, you mentioned NFTs, of course. You know, immediately I thought metaverse, right? And part of what I fancy about Meow Wolf is that. You know, Meow Wolf, this is my characterization, but I mean, one could argue that Meow Wolf has personified the metaverse, right? You know, people want to people want to put on uh, maybe goggles or put on augmented, you know, reality lenses or something to see a virtual landscape or something fantastical or creative or what have you that doesn't exist in the physical world. But that level of fantasy, that level of creativity or innovation, I mean, Meow Wolf has, has made it physical. If you didn't know any better walking through, you're in another world. You might as well be in another universe, right? Yeah. That is the narrative of these exhibitions is you are right. like literally going through portals into other dimensions. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's part of what's so fun about this gig, Scott. I mean, I'm tasked with things like, how do you communicate with a sixth dimensional swamp being? Or... <laughs> You know, without using language, you know, that kind of stuff. What keeps you up at night, Max? (laughs) (laughs) It gets pretty philosophical. It gets pretty deep. I mean, when you're talking about multiple dimensions and, you know, what happens when five different planets that get smashed together, you know, what happens to that culture? Where would the culture of five different planets that got smashed together be after 25 years? Mm. You know, that Mm. kind of stuff. Mm. And and how do they relate now to Earth now that we've opened a portal between Convergence and Denver? You know, and these are the types of conversations that I'm in that I just pinch myself about every day, honestly. So I have a question because it's one thing to innovate in a room around story, you know, in terms of imagining, you know, having those conversations, you know, what would happen to a culture if, if interplanetary collision, boom, you know, what would happen? And, you know, it's one thing to have those conversations in a room where anything's possible and you're just whiteboarding and, you know, you're, you're talking all these different ideas, but then it's a whole nother thing, right? To innovate in terms of bringing that to life and executing on those ideas, right? You know, George Lucas famously had to invent technology that didn't exist to tell the Star Wars story, right? He had a story he wanted to tell and had to invent. And that's how how Lucas Films was in, you know, ILM was Industrial Light Magic. That's how it was created, right? And, you know, George Lucas famously talks about how the technology should serve the art. It's not the other way around, right? Yep. So help us understand how Meow Wolf innovates in the practical sense. You know, you have this amazing story. It's never been told before. It's totally novel. And yet the technology you need to tell that story just doesn't exist. And you have to R&D yourself. Give us an example of how you guys in real time, day to day, are creating solutions that don't exist to help you tell your stories. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. I'm going to use an outside example for real quick. I think about this movie, John Carpenter's The Thing. It's one of my favorite horror films. Yes. I mean, it's so gross and beautiful (laughs) and scary. (laughs) And when I was a kid, my dad showed me these movies probably when I was too young. (laughs) It was the 80s. Yeah, 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 exactly. But but the other thing is he also showed me how the making of, like he showed me the behind the scenes footage. Right. And so I understood it's rubber, it's art, you know? And, And actually when I was a kid, I wanted to be a makeup artist for the movies. And I, even as a kid, as an eight year old watching the thing, and there's a sequence, one of the famous sequences where there's a guy on the table and they've got defibrillators on his chest. His chest opens up. The guy's arms fall into his chest. The chest bites his arms off. Meanwhile, the head like detaches itself and falls on the floor and sprouts spider legs and crawls away and all this crazy tentacles flying around. And even as a kid, I remember watching that scene and just going like, man, what would it have been like to be in that room when they were figuring out how to make this movie, how to make this scene? 
And I even then I was imagining like, okay, there's the you know the the makeup guy is you know maybe doing some drawings of, and then there's the camera guys talking about what angle they're going to shoot and where they're going to edit and there's story guys you know talking about the sequence of events and and it's something that's so fantastical that sequence is just so over the top and it's so ridiculously crazy yet they pull it off you know it's all just practical effects it's all rubber and editing and sound effects and light you know it's all real world things and meow wolf is still relatively new and we don't have a giant we haven't invented like a new movie studio or a new technology studio that's that's inventing new technology to tell these stories yet best believe that we're thinking about that stuff though so what do we use to tell these stories what do we use you know how do we tell the story of five planets that smash together to create convergence with portals and and these various cultures and all of this stuff and and it is just practical real life physical things you know the big feat is the coordination that it takes to pull it off and so it's so it's things like for example in denver part of the story is there are these a missing character from each of the planets that converged and there's some mystery surrounding why, where they went and what happened to them. And so, you know, like a simple thing that we do is we have these missing persons posters up in the alleyways of the city, or there are these newspaper. One of the things I got to design for, for Denver are these newspaper machines where you turn a crank and we, we had to figure out a way to get newspapers onto the street of this exhibit without people actually taking it, newspapers. <laughs> so it's a newspaper machine and you turn a crank on the side of it and the newspaper rolls by the window so you can read it through the window. And there's an article there about the missing four. And then there might be like a mention of them on a radio station. And, you know, there's these little bits. And the way that we tell stories in the exhibits are not, it's not a thing where we kind of hold a person's hand through a specific sequence of events, like a movie, you know, most movies traditionally, it's like, okay, here's the characters, here's what happens to them. They kind of, they kind of take you on a very specific journey in these exhibits. Instead, what we do is we spatter elements throughout the exhibits and those can be, you know, print deliverables. They could be, you know, like a journal left on a desk or a photo with a note on the back, written on the back of it and someone's drawer or missing persons posters, or radio station stuff, or a TV commercial that glitches and shows something for a second. And we just kind of spatter the details throughout the exhibit, and then really just encourage people to explore. And one of the rules that we have at Meow Wolf is no maps. No maps. Because we don't want people to know where to go, how to find their way through. We want people to get lost. Can I bring a compass? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, go ahead, bring a compass. I don't know if it'll work in other dimensions. Yeah, it may not, probably won't. (laughs) Yeah, you could try. The attitude about finding their way through the space, Mm. meaning Mm. get lost and discover, Mm. is similar to the stories. We want the stories there because stories are important. They they help us uh, as humans, you know, kind of connect emotionally to things. And the story is very important. We pay a lot of attention to the story. But the story is kind of organically, you know, baked into the space. And and so people can get as much or as little of the story as they're interested in. You know, someone can walk by all those missing persons posters and walk by those newspaper machines and they might pick up on, oh, there's some mystery here. And that's all they need to pick up on. And that's fine. That's great. If they're having fun exploring and getting their mind blown by all the blinky lights and all the cool paintings and all the cool sculptures and the interactive rocket cars and the, you know, all the stuff that's there to play with, then they're having the experience we would hope they would have. And then there are the people that do stop and, and take in those details and get kind of hooked in and want to solve the mystery. And if they do want to, we've provided all the materials they need to do that. All of this begs the question, if you happen to know the answer, what's the longest that any one person has ever been in any one of the Meow Wolf exhibitions? Because I could see somebody just going in and getting lost. And it's like six hours later, like, where are they? You know, and you have to pull people out at the end of the day. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know what the I, I don't know what the specifics are to the that answer. What's the longest? That yeah. is a pretty good question, though. But I mean, yeah, six hours is a thing that people do. Right. Six or eight hours. I've, yeah. You know, there's like mega fans that yeah. that yeah. that are there on a mission to get every bit of story that we sorted out. We've yeah. Hidden. And then they'll put, you know, on their blog on Reddit or whatever, they'll reveal all the information they've discovered. And, and so, yeah, there, I, I mean, I personally find that about two or three hours is, a, you know, you start, I mean, everyone's different and it depends on what pace you're going at and that sort of thing. But personally, it's like two or three hours and then I, I've kind of filled up. Yeah. I can't take in much more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm similar. I think what I, well, I know what I would have to do is I'd have to, I want to come back again and again, right? Like, yeah. uh, you know, maybe I don't know if it'd be every day in a row for two or three or four days, but certainly several times on a course of a short time, just to, because the way my brain works anyway, just, you know, the, you, you have to take it all in and then it sort of starts to sort itself out, but it's, it takes time, you know, to let it marinate and, and let things be revealed, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, man. Wow. Wow. So Santa Fe, was Denver next or Vegas? Which came second? I think if I remember correctly, what had happened was Santa Fe first and then Denver was next, was supposed to be next. And we started working on Denver and then we signed the deal for Vegas as well. And then this things shifted because Denver, I I think the Santa Fe exhibition is about 20,000 square feet. The Denver exhibition is about 90,000 square feet. The Vegas exhibition is about 30,000 square feet. It's bigger than, it's not as big as Denver, but bigger than Santa Fe. And so what ended up happening is even though we kind of kicked Denver into gear and started the process of kind of gutting this old steel mill building that's sandwiched between a bunch of freeways there in Denver, the Vegas thing kind of started heating up faster and they needed us because we're part of a a larger entity there, which is called a uh, area 15, which is kind of like what they, they, they call themselves like an experience mall. There's other things to do in that space. It's, it's almost like we're the Sears in the mall. Like we take up half of it, but there are other <laughs> things there. Yeah. And they were like getting ready to open by a certain date. And we wanted to be open when they were, you know, for their grand opening. So what happened is we shifted our efforts over to Vegas to get Vegas done first. And then we, pivoted back to Denver. It was, it was whiplash, man. And all of this was happening in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. You know, right. It was pretty crazy. And it kind of just turned it. Meowth just kind of turned into this, like, let's just cross the finish line. Like, let's just get Vegas and Denver open, like at, at all costs, like, let's just do this and, you know, heads down, let's get it done. And it was amazing. The effort that went into it was really amazing. And, you know, pandemics aside, I mean, you still only have so many artists on staff and you still those those human beings can only work so many hours in a day or whatever. I mean, how many artists on staff now? That's hard to answer. I don't know how many artists particular in particular, because there's. OK, so how many people in the company? Let's put it this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many people I, yeah, yeah. in the company? It takes more than just the artist, right? There's right. payroll, there's HR, course, there's you know, course. there's the producers. Yes. The producers that play a huge role. The creative producers, there's creative directors, there's you know, all these all these people, the architects, the fabricators, there's all this stuff. So graphic designers. Anyway, the company got to about five hundred people mm-hmm. kind of when we were at our peak of full throttle mm-hmm. getting Denver and Vegas done. Mm-hmm. And then we Unfortunately, in the middle of the pandemic, this this thing happened where we had to lay off a bunch of people. We call it the rift. It left a big scar in all of us. It was really hard, man. People that were, you know, I was talking earlier about people volunteering to to build the house and people that were there from the beginning had to be let go because of, you know, all the reasons that you can imagine, mostly probably money. We overpromised. We overshot what we thought we needed. And what we thought we could afford. And in order to keep the company like open and working, we had to like really cut back. And it just haunts me to this day, just that moment where we laid off like half the company. And so then we were down to about 250 people making it happen. But now that we've kind of managed to get Vegas and Denver open, including the people that work to run Vegas and run Denver, so we've got Meowth Creative Studios, which is 
artists drawing and making fabricators, making producers planning, you know, that, you know, we're all kind of like making the next exhibitions and kind of the keepers of the overall brand and that sort of thing. That's the Meowth Creative Studio stuff. There's us plus the operators of all the exhibits. It equals to about, you know, 900, almost a thousand people. Yeah, well, and then, you know, part of why the reason I'm asking also is is this notion, you know, planning for success, right? Hoping that, you know, you know, many more exhibitions, many more locations are in the pipeline globally, building out those spaces. The skill set of the folks that drive the Meow Wolf rocket ship, it's a very unique set of skills. I mean, these people are rare, uh, quite frankly, right? So the question is, I'm, I'm just curious, like, what, if anything, is an organization like Meow Wolf or what specifically is Meow Wolf doing, you know, in terms of working with SCAD, RISD, Art Center, Otis, to create a pipeline for younger talent? I mean, what does that onboarding or recruiting look like to bring in new, fresh, young blood? I mean, that's a great question. And it's something that we've been talking about. This woman who cuts my hair has a 15-year-old daughter who's into art. And we've been talking about like, how do we get her into just getting kids into the space? We call it the cat building here in Santa Fe. We call it the cat building because it used to be a factory that built Caterpillar tractors. So cat is this big warehouse style building that is our houses, our fabrication facilities. So a bunch of artists painting and sculpting. There's welders welding. There's carpenters cutting wood. There's We have a giant laser cutter machine that can cut half-inch steel. We've got a CNC machine. We've got a vacuform machine. You know, it's crazy the kind of stuff we can do there. We can build almost anything. And just every day there's something new and cool happening on the floor there. And so, you know, I've been talking with the community outreach folks and, you know, how do we get just kids in here just to come walk through, just tours, just to see like what's going on here and to see, you know, the v- wide variety of skill sets that come into play here. I was just talking to a guy on the plane recently. I was sat next to a young guy who was drawing on his iPad and I said, oh, you're an artist. And so we started talking and, and I was just talking to him about how if you say, I want to be an artist that might kind of you might have an idea of what that means in your head. But if you say, I want to be around creative people, the possibilities really explode because creative people work in all sorts of ways. You've got, you know, designers that, you know, you shoe designers or architects or, you know, traditional painters or graphic designers or furniture people. I mean, creatives are all over the place and TV and film and music and all this stuff. And I think that to get that message out to young people that are considering what they might want to pursue in college and beyond high school to show them that you can have a creative life without needing to be a, a traditional painter. You know, I think they, they think that being an artist means I draw for a living, you know, and, and that's not necessarily true. All that being said, yeah, everyone's really into that. And we only just recently started um, an internship program where we let just a few kids from local art schools here in town come in and do internship for in various departments. But when I say only just recently, it's because we have been just barely getting by through this pandemic. And only now are we starting to kind of have the breathing room to start figuring out like how we're going to, you know, do these other things besides just get the exhibitions open, you know? And so we are growing to meet those ideas and it's, and it is beginning and I'm really excited to see how it's turning out. Yeah. I mean, you know, pandemics aside, I mean, the, the challenge, you know, you have the, you know, all the challenges that comes with being a hot startup company growing, you know, exponentially, (laughs) you know, I mean, these are just real struggles, right. That so many hot young growing companies have, let alone during a pandemic, but it makes so much sense, obviously, right, over time, over the next few years to figure out those strategies or those programs that allow you to nurture that younger talent. And that's so exciting. I'm so excited for those young kids that get to come and be part of that internship program. What a fantastic opportunity for them. Yeah, it's been great. And our, her name's Danica. She, Our community outreach person is like really amazing and has been doing – we do other things like – 
you know, we give a lot of money out in terms of, in form of grants, small grants for artists, and we donate to special causes and, and that sort of thing. So we are making sure that we are doing something, you know, like sure. what we can manage. We are a B Corp. I don't know if you know what that means, but it, it yeah. means. Yeah, you have a good social contract, triple bottom line, community benefit, yeah. trying to make the world a better place while you make a profit. Yeah. And as far as I know, what they're telling us is that we're the only B Corp in the arts and entertainment industry. We are doing something to earn that, you know what I mean? And we all are really proud of it. And we hope to keep that status and and continue growing that. Around the company, we say that Mialf is an art project supporting a business and it's a business supporting an art project. Love that. That art project goes beyond us. It goes beyond just the, the people that work there. We want to inspire creativity outside of just Meow Wolf. We want people to see what we've done and think, man, maybe I can do something like that. Like maybe I want to make something. Maybe I want to disrupt something. Maybe I want to surprise somebody. That's some of the stuff that we're hoping rubs off on the people that come visit us. Max Neutra, that is actually, I think, a beautiful, positive place, uh, message to sort of wrap this up, man. You have been so generous with your time. We, we've been chatting. I mean, hour 12 minutes, I mean, has flown by. We could keep rolling, man. I know we could. <laughs> time travel. Time travel, indeed, right? I can't say enough how happy I am for you as an old pal of yours to see you know, all the goodness that's come your way as a result of your hard work, dedication, being open, being willing to take risks. I mean, there's a lesson here for so many people. There's inspiration here for so many people. But, you know, as your pal, I'm just thrilled for you. Definitely. And I'm thrilled for Meow Wolf to have you. They're lucky to have you as much as you are lucky to have them. And and I'm just lucky that you're able to find some time for, for us today. And, and thanks for hanging out, brother. This has been a, a real gift. Thanks, Scott. I feel really blessed uh, in general. I feel really glad to be on your podcast. Uh, you know, thanks for all your work, uh, spreading the good word and supporting the arts in the way you do. Thanks all around. Thanks, brother. I appreciate the good words. And make me a promise. Will you come back and visit again? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. Fantastic. Me too, brother. Have a great night. Thanks, dude. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, Remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi DeLauro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.